0: Good afternoon, there I am. This is Ellen Bell here on KUCI, 88.9 FM. Welcome to Vintage Orange. Um, That was a little different music for me starting out here. Um, Usually I am hearing uh, a little more mellow music, but we started with the king of surf guitar, Dick Dale, because it's appropriate. Today we're talking about the history of music in Orange County, and uh, I have a very special guest here in studio with me. Uh, We're going to be shedding some light on some things that came, sounds that came right out of here in the O.C. And so to help me do that, I have uh, Jim Washburn, who has written about music and popular culture for, let's see, the LA Times, the Register, the OC Weekly, which he was uh, a founding executive editor, and uh, just written about a lot of things. He's a he's a pop culture expert, knows a lot about music and things that have gone on here in Orange County. And um, so welcome, Jim. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having <laughs> me. you <I laughs> left out the penny saver.
0: Oh, I so. know. I know. That's true. That's right. That should have been the top of your, yeah. your credits there. But, um... No, thanks. I should say welcome back to KUCI because you're a a veteran here.
1: Early 90s, I had a show here called Radio Free OC for like zero listeners.
0: (laughs) How can you say that? That's not true. I'm sure. What kind of music did you play? Whatever
1: didn't hit the ground and bounce. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so very alternative, very, you know, radio free, like you said. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Well, I, I wanted to have you on the show because this is a, an Orange County local history show. And uh, I heard you speak a couple weeks ago about um, Orange County counterculture, um, the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And, and part of your talk was a lot about the music that originated here. And uh, I love this because I don't think a lot of people, when they think of Orange County, don't think about counterculture and things that originated here like that. And so I wanted you to talk about that, kind of um, kind of educate us a little bit about that and the music scene. But actually, there were some very significant things that came out of Orange County that affected um, the music at that time. Is that there, correct?
1: There certainly were. And it starts really with the technology. A gentleman named Leo Fender, who was born in a barn <laughs> on the outskirts of Anaheim, um, grew up uh, tinkering with things. He invented a form of turnt- a, a turntable that he got a patent on, things like that, and he loved country music, and all the country musicians in Orange County before long were taking their, their stuff to him for him to repair, and he made PA systems for them, and he wasn't really happy with the quality of the instruments. That um, they were bringing into him, so he started tinkering around making stuff as, of his own. Mm-hmm. And in 1950, made, it was originally called the Broadcaster, quickly ch- the name was changed to the Telecaster, which was the first uh, successful production solid body electric guitar, which changed the sound of modern music, followed that two years later. Uh, with the electric bass, which further changed the sound of modern music. Two years after that, uh, 1954 had the Fender Stratocaster, still the most copied guitar in the face of the world, and one of the great musical tools of the last 65 years or whatever. And um, that kind of became the thing that enabled modern music and also became a great thing for the working class or the poorer classes because instead of needing an orchestra to move an audience you could have three guys up there with Fender instruments and amps, ideally a drummer as well and create enough racket to keep people dancing and happy all night. And that allowed R&B music and a whole lot of other things to really become viable on the road.
0: So it was really an acoustic thing. I mean, he, he kind of invented yeah. not only a guitar, but the amps and things that could allow the music to be heard in large venues. And that kind of went along with the music that was being created.
1: Yeah, and there were guitars and amps before that that were amplified, but largely they just take an acoustic guitar, put this device called a pickup on it. Mm-hmm and then that just had a whole lot of problems and he improved upon that and came up with something that made a great big racket and also if it came to a bar fight it was really hard to break.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was sturdy. Well, that's I love the the uh, the idea about Leo Fender cuz he really was more of a pragmatist. He's more of an engineer than anything else. I mean, he fixed radios and appliances mm-hmm. like that and and so when he started it's it to me it was like they were looking for a more practical way to keep their instruments safe and and durable mm-hmm. on the road you know, so that they could stay um, viable and keep keep working. And so he was looking at it more from the practical, how do we make a better guitar?
1: Yeah, he didn't even play guitar. Right. But he... He had a lot of musician friends that did, and he mm-hmm. would use them as sounding boards for things. And it was there was a lot of resistance to his instruments at first. Uh, Dale Fortune, who was his head salesman, would go out on the road, and he'd carry the the broadcaster guitar into like a music store, and they'd say, where's the boat you're going to row with that thing? <laughs> and what he would do then, he'd, he'd ask them, "Well, what's the good music club in town here? Where, where the, where's the music happening? He would go out to those places that night, put the guitar in the hands of local musicians. The next day, he'd go back to the music store and say, well, I've got orders for six of these. You can fill them, or I can. Yeah. And that's how we signed up a lot of people who become Fender dealers. The musicians were really far ahead of the industry in determining, you know, what what was good back then. And they they really took to the stuff. And um, and as is want to happen with technology people found ways of using them in ways that Leo never intended. He was a big fan of country and western music mm-hmm. and he had a vibrato bar where you could make these sort of gentle little variations in the pitch of the thing. Before long uh, blues guys like Ike Turner were taking that guitar, you know, the, the whammy bar as it came right. to be called and just about tearing it off the instrument, making these wild dive bombs with it and things, which is certainly something Jimi Hendrix also made the best of later. Uh, they were turning up their amps so they would distort and make this sort of raucous sound that Leo never quite had in mind and he went along with it pretty well Um, when Dick Dale came along same thing Um, uh, Leo kind of took him under his wing and came up with bigger better louder amps for him had a reverb device that made a splashy reverb sound that originally been used in Hammond organs to kind of make a church hall sound and instead they found if you turned them up and played through them loud enough it sounded like this big crashing wave coming over you and also, again, things being used in ways not originally intended, which is kind of half the history of America anyway.
0: Right. So it was yeah. really a very creative, inventive time. He was just trying different types of technologies and sounds and things. And, and it kind of matched what was happening musically at that time.
1: Yeah, matched and partly drove it. You know, mm-hmm. you never know what, what would Jimi Hendrix have done if he hadn't come along in the era when there was like the Fender Stratocaster and the Fuzz mm-hmm. Tone and the Wawa pedal. And history tends to happen anyway. And the talent wills out, but it was certainly fortuitous. He was around after Leo and these others had kind of made the the sounds he made possible.
0: Right, right. So so Fender comes along, Mm -hmm. and Fender's kind of, like you said, creating this new technology and and starting this um, music scene or whatever. Who are the people that are playing in Orange County at that time? Where is this music... Um. Play.
1: Initially, country musicians. You know, along the coast, you had a couple of venues. You know, doing big band music like mm-hmm. the rendezvous ballroom and all. That was a big spot for the big bands to have resonances and things. But uh, otherwise, once you moved inland, it was pretty well Hicksville here. You yeah. know, this was, you know, the main things in Orange County then were like lima beans, celery, um, beets, for sugar beets, um, oranges, of course and all that. There was cattle ranching down on the Irvine Ranch and it was sort of country and western music to suit it that was mostly popular here and country musicians, which were the people Leo first intended this stuff for anyway, were um, the first to adapt it. But then come in the early 50s, there were um, three three brothers in Santa Ana, the Rolera brothers, um, Butch, Barry, and Rick, who um, who fell in love with black R&B music thanks to radio stations out of LA. And even then it was a limited thing. You could maybe find two hours of R&B music a night if you looked hard enough on your radio dial Mm -hmm. like for one or two stations they fell in love with the stuff they started buying 78 records by B.B. King and learning the guitar parts and things and as soon as they could they bought Fender gear Um, Rick Rollera bought one of the first Fender Precision basses when it came out the other guys took up the stuff Butch the drummer came, he was the younger brother so he kind of joined a little later but Mm -hmm. uh, the two older brothers Rick and Barry um, by 1955 had the Rollera Brothers Rhythm Rockers which were the first rock and roll and rhythm and blues band in Orange County. And they really slowly changed the face of things. There was a place called Harmony Park Ballroom in Anaheim that had, again, been a largely a country ballroom. Mm-hmm. And they took it over one night a week, the quiet night of the week, when no one else was using it and soon was packing the place with Latin, Latin Americans and white kids that dug the music, the the few black people in Orange County at the time. <laughs> And started really changing the face of things. And along with their own music, which was a mix of rock, rhythm, and blues, and also um, Latin music because of their heritage there. Um, mm-hmm. They would also bring in artists from L.A. and elsewhere, kind of somewhat name artists. There was a guy named Richard Berry who sang on a lot of uh, good R&B records out of L.A. And he was one of their guest singers, like a frequent guest singer with them. And one, one week they heard him. Rather, he heard them Mm -hmm. play a a Cuban instrumental that went dun-dun-dun, dun-dun, (laughs) dun-dun-dun, and such. And the next week he came back and said, hey, play that again. And he had a set of lyrics he sang over it, and that was the song Louie Louie. Oh, wow. Which had its beginnings on a stage here in Anaheim. Which later became, uh, you probably know that song was uh, studied by the FBI for a while. There was a long investigation of it because a lot of people thought the lyrics on it were dirty. And there's like about a seventy four page f b i report on it As trying if they to get to the bottom else to do <laughs> and the most they could figure out is no one could figure out what these guys were saying. <laughs> I so. still can't.
0: No. Yeah. so that's that's what's happening in in so the Valera brothers were kind of mm-hmm. the ground zero as far as acts yeah, they, being performed yeah here. they
1: really were and they were kind of what opened the scene up to everything else uh Bill Medley later of the Righteous Brothers some of his earliest singing gigs were with them and they were both mm-hmm. huge enthusiasts for this music that both both uh, Barry Valera and Bill Medley have told me about a trip they took up to the LA Palladium Hollywood Palladium to see um uh, Ray Charles and his band play and they like were right up front and said it just opened up their 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 minds and their hearts incredibly and just turned their whole heads around And it was that sort of enthusiasm that just carried through, and again in, I think, 62, the Righteous Brothers got together, Bill and Bobby Hatfield, Mm -hmm. and started, again, largely with the black audience. Again, there were very few black folks in Orange County at the time, but there was a lot of people with the El Toro Marine Base who became their initial audience, and were also the ones that named them the Righteous Brothers. Um, That's sort of jumping the gun a little bit, but they came along later. And um, and also, um, the rollers were part and parcel of Dick Dale's band when he started up. Um,
0: so this is all happening in what period of time, pretty much um, the late...
1: The rollers the started gigging around in 1955, mm-hmm. you know, playing um, Harmony Park, playing the other places. They played a lot of weddings and dances and car clubs, uh, some things where there were minor riots at and things. <laughs>
0: so there really um, wasn't, a, you know, the... A music scene here we weren't places to play there wasn't like a regular acceptance people weren't going to these concerts and shows really on a mainstream level um how did that get translated how did that happen
1: well it was again you know there was some jazz stuff there was lounge music there were mm-hmm. country bands playing around but the, the modern the, the modern music we know and love took hold pretty late and um There was kind of concurrent with the rock and rhythm blues and everything. There was a a nascent folk music scene that started growing up around 1958 on Laguna Beach, which seemed a nice, obvious place for it. (laughs) Uh, There was a place called Cafe Frankenstein there. And then that was soon, soon joined by a place called Sid's Blue Beat. And they both did like music and poetry and avant-garde things like Lord Buckley, who See. was this hip on tour, and all. And they also did a lot of jazz, like um, Stan Getz and people like that. You so know, you could
0: wear right your there. mock turtleneck and your beret. Yeah,
1: and, <laughs> yeah, and, and shortly after, um, Sid's Blue Beat, he moved his place up to Newport Beach. Oh, okay which was a great locale in other ways, in other ways not so good with the city and the cops just sort of fought them nonstop, mm-hmm. you know, for bringing more blacks into the city, for um, bringing in this music they didn't understand and things. Right. And, uh, and also jazz musicians, Art Pepper, um, got busted for heroin right outside the, the blue beat one night which didn't add to its luster any no but again we're lucky that our pepper had a place to play in orange county
0: <laughs> so you had folk music going on the late the late 50s yeah starting
1: in the late 50s and kind of along with you know starting late 50s early 60s kind of the, the clean cut folk music mm-hmm. kind of opened the door for the real folk music you know and um and that became pretty popular here um, between Laguna, Newport, and then later there were some venues up in the, you know, in the inner county and all. Called one was called the the Paradox, um, at a couple of other places, the Mecca, a few mm-hmm. places like that, um, where people got their start. And uh, there was also the Prison of Socrates uh, down in Newport. And a lot of folks got their start. The Peter Tork of the Monkees used to sing there, Stephen Stills, really? at various of these venues. The Golden Bear had also started up as a music venue around the same time mm-hmm. and was both you know kind of in, an incubating place for local musicians and also brought in a lot of touring people for people to see, Like including like the old blues musicians who got kind of fortunately pulled in on the vortex of the folk scene and found a new audience. So you get guys like John Lee Hooker and people like that playing at the Golden Bear turning kids heads around and all
0: and what yeah. was that That venue was a very uh, you know kind of an iconic venue in huntington beach and, and it seemed like it was well along with the the rendezvous mm-hmm. be kind of the birthplace of the surf music um yeah. but uh h- how was that such a was it a larger venue or how to it get it, so popularity it was, what was causing maybe that?
1: 250 you could cram in there something yeah. like that i don't know the exact number so it wasn't gigantic but it was just one of those rooms that became legendary with musicians like not just locally, but certainly touring musicians mm-hmm. would love playing the place. Some rooms just have a magic about them, mm-hmm. the bricks soak up so much good music, it kind of inspires other people to do their best, and that was one of those rooms that had basically a 26 year run before the city tore it down, so that decades later they could put up a plaque celebrating the place <laughs> they torn down, and it, it did all sorts of music, again folk and jazz and things, but as rock and roll became more prominent they did a lot of that, And a lot of the influential bands of the time, like um, the Paul Butterfield Band played there a lot, um, Love and Spoonful, the Birds, people like that. Bob Dylan was kind of famously portrayed on the mural that wound up outside the Golden Bear, but he was so popular by the time they kind of had to outsource his show. And they <coughs> rented a, a high school gym in um, Long Beach to put him on.
0: So these ad, the acts that you were mentioning, were they coming through when they were at their height, or were they getting started there, or, you know, was this kind of like a launching place, or are these people coming through on their regular tours? A,
1: a bit of both, and, and they managed to pull in a lot of big acts mm-hmm. there, um, just because people, you know, they'd have an off night between the major cities, and they had to pay the hotel room, so they'd take a gig in mm-hmm. a place they didn't know sometimes when they are starting off, or sometimes when they were a big act, like Peter Gabriel. Kicked, you know this is in the eighties, kicked mm-hmm. off one of his tours at the Golden Bear just because it was kind of out of the way, and all and it kind of like a shakedown mm-hmm. cruise for his band that could get the nuts and bolts out there where there was a small audience of people that loved him and he kind of loved the venue too, though he never did return because he again he was filling arenas at the time yeah, but one of the things he liked about it is when people were still clamoring for an encore, he'd run out the back door, stripped off most of his clothes, and was body surfing on <laughs> the beach across the street.
0: So he waited. They had to wait while he got in the ocean for a little bit.
1: Well, that was the end of the show. (laughs) There was a a, a story Dick Dale told, because right across the street on the ocean side of of the Pacific Coast Highway, there used to be the Pavillon Ballroom where Dick would play. And he was a surfer. Not a terribly good one by most accounts, but he did (laughs) surf. And he told me once that he'd be, you know, wearing his jammies, you know, his not his pajamas, his what they call the jammy yeah. um, long swim shorts on stage and during during the, the breaks between sets he'd go out and catch some waves and he came in once soaking wet, he said and he's playing his guitar and singing and he got this huge shock in his mouth. Yeah, you because know, there, was, there, there was a grounding problem. He got 117 volts through oh him. Oh, my and gosh. And he didn't realize how much it had affected to him. He played a lot of instruments. He did this thing showing up, played the drums, played trumpet. And he was playing the trumpet. And according to him, blood was shooting out of the bell <gasps> of the trumpet into the audience when he was playing it.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Which
1: might be true. Who knows? That,
0: that sounds a little, hmm. That's yeah. very interesting. I, I find it interesting that the king of surf guitar wasn't a very good surfer.
1: Well, you know, <laughs> who knows? I and mean, then he'd tell you a different story. Ironic, ironic. Yeah, but he, he was a fabulous, fabulous guitarist. Yeah. And he, he started off loving country music, uh, which was a small influence on the surf music and certainly the electric guitar help. But he also came from a, a Lebanese-American family, so he heard a lot of oud music with that really speedy picking and things. Exactly, yeah. And those influences, plus he was a huge fan of Gene Krupa's drumming. And he said, if you listen to him play guitar, it was sort of a one long drum solo, where like the, the lower strings were sort of like the bass drum, the middle strings were the things, and mm-hmm. like the high string would be the, the, the cymbals or something. And, um, and he made a, a great big noise. You know, um, Fender had an app called the, the Showman app that kind of came to be because they kept trying to come up with an app that Dick couldn't blow up. <laughs> <laughs> it, which was it, a challenge. Yeah, when it finally reached that point of perfection, they put it on the market. Well,
0: you know, the surf guitar thing happened at um, at the Rendezvous Ballroom, which yeah. was located in Balboa Peninsula yeah, and uh, had been there for many years as a, a big band's venue. Yeah, exactly, and, and it had a
1: huge dance floor.
0: And um, um, when did it become the the main place for surf guitar
1: 1961 which is when Dick started playing there he originally started playing the surf music at a ice cream parlor I think called the rinky dink <laughs> and became so literally called the rinky dink It yeah. became so popular there that he soon moved into that place which I think could hold like 3,500 4,000 people maybe and and he tended to pack it a lot out a lot particularly during Bow week which was like the big Easter break thing when mm-hmm. everyone would swarm the peninsula And it became a hugely popular thing, and everyone else locally took notice. Um, It's funny, Van Dyke Parks, who later became um, a lyricist for the Beach Boys and wrote a lot of great idiosyncratic music on his own, was in a, um, a bluegrass band with his brother that was playing the Prison of Socrates. And one day they heard, heard a big racket down the street on their break and he went running down to see what it was and it was the Beach Boys playing one of their very first gigs Wow! at, at the rendezvous. And again, they kind of got turned on by, by Dick Dale's instrumental music. Dick makes a big distr- distinction between what he did and what the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean did. He says his is surf music and everything else is music about surfing, uh-huh. which is kind of true. In a way, he tried to create the, just the palpable sensation of a wave crashing over your head whereas they were singing about it. Right. Yeah, it was sort of like the ex- experiential form, the mystical realm of religion, as opposed to the people that stick to the text or something.
0: And again, he's using Fender technology. He's using yeah. that stuff, yeah. so it's it's.
1: Yep, yeah, about as loud as he could. <laughs> yeah, and, louder than anyone else. Yeah. And, and among the people that heard him play, there were these young kids that were going to Santa Ana High School, formed a band called the Shantaes and they had the biggest surf hit, probably in history and certainly out of Orange County, called Pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, that. They recorded. They couldn't even afford Fender equipment yet, though I think they borrowed some. And they wrote, when they were 15 years old, two of them, Bob Spickard and uh, Brian Carmen, were sitting in one of their, their high school bedrooms and came up with the entirety of Pipeline. That a few months later, they recorded in a r- recording studio that was in the back of a record store in Downey. Mm-hmm. And it became a huge international hit.
0: So, and it all started, the The roots are found here in, in Newport Beach, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, in the 60s, you know, things in San Francisco, obviously, everybody knows what's going on up there, and L.A. to somewhat. What's going on in Orange County, well, musically?
1: Well, the, the Beatles changed everything, you know, just almost overnight. And, and one of the signs of it, if you go to the yard sales and things like that, you know, the case, fender amps used to be blonde, mm-hmm. like tolex on them, the covering on them and it was so associated with surf music and all the Beatle lamps were coming out of England and had the black covering on them and no one wanted to be an unhip surf musician anymore. So you'd find these old things still that people repainted black so, they, so they'd so they look hip like a Beatle band <laughs> and they'd grow their hair out and things. So there was one surf band that the, their response to the Beatles was to shave their heads, and they'd come out on stage. This was the Pyramids, that was more of a Long Beach band that they gigged here a lot, and they would they'd come out wearing Beetle wigs and ha, ah, look where the Beatles, and then they'd shake their heads so much the wigs would fall off, and find they'd all shave their heads. <laughs> well, they, <laughs> they were a pretty neat band.
0: The, the anti-Beatles or the reactionary Beatles.
1: Yeah, so, though they all kind of liked the Beatles. It was hard not to, and they they just sort of revolutionized everything, just opened people's ears up to the possibility of things, and also you know for a long time it was rock and roll was regarded as this sort of product where you know the record label would tell bands what to record the record label would pick the cover art the record label would tell them how to dress and the beatles changed all that they were writing their own songs they were very picky about how the music was presented and all that stuff and that kind of filtered out to everybody else you know, I, I have to say also the Beach Boys were be, just because they were such a cash cow for their label of Capitol Records that their leader Brian Wilson got a lot of sway on how how and when and why they would record their stuff. Uh, but that just again opened the scene up, turned things on a lot, and um, some people made it out of Orange County to to do other stuff. Like one of the first was there was a singer named Bev Bivens, who I think went to a Buena Park High School. I remember a group called the We Five uh, with a pretty big hit, kind of folk rock hit, called You Were On My Mind. She was their singer. Mm-hmm. And they were a San Francisco band, but she'd migrated up there. Uh, locally there was a whole lot of bands that didn't much break out, that were pretty much doing what else was doing. you know, Kind of being your Beatles or Stones-esque bands, and then kind of growing on with the changes from there. When Cream came along, you'd had bands here like the Stack that called themselves the Stack because they had these huge Marshall amp stacks that were coming out of England, which were even a lot louder than what Fender was making. So Fender, of course, had to respond with even bigger amps and soon nobody could hear anything. It's <laughs> funny that the whole idea of the electric guitar was originally making an instrument that you could hear, at least hear alongside the other band instruments, as opposed to something that's going to obliterate everything else, uh, there was a pop festival at the Orange County Fairgrounds in 1968 called the Newport Pop Festival, and one of the headlining acts was a San Francisco band called Blue Cheer that had a wall of these martial amps, and I know people that were living on the other side of Newport Bay, like <laughs> over in Newport, even on the other side of MacArthur, that said they could hear that band. They were so loud.
0: Unbelievable. Like, it's a wonder anybody had ears left that they could hear at all.
1: Yeah. And um, some of the other bands out of here then, there was a Honk that kind of grew up around the um, Laguna scene. They were very late 60s, but much more of a 70s band. Uh, Jackson Brown was kind of cutting his teeth here in the county in the mid-60s, playing a couple of the folk clubs I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And again, also soaking up the other, you know the music of the other people that would be coming through and also heading up to L.A. It was really nice having L.A. Pro, you know, proximate to you. You didn't have to be... You know, a, a, a little fish in the big sea of L.A., but you could go up there and catch all the, like, a, a good place where folk music was, the Ash Grove then, and they'd all head up there and do that stuff. But mainly they would hear music and kind of do their early gigs here in Orange County. Were
0: there places, I mean, you're you're getting yeah. more of a market now nationally for mm-hmm. pop music and this kind of thing, and um, w- where were there places where people could go hear music in, in more of a mainstream way?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There weren't many for a, lo- mm-hmm. a long time here. Um, the Anaheim Convention Center, when it opened in, I think it was 67, uh, they had a whole gala week of opening stuff, and one of their opening shows was The Doors and the Jefferson Airplane. Hmm. And they were a pretty popular, the big rock venue for three or four years, along with everything else that happened in there, including conventions. And... Um, And the second rock show I ever saw there, I saw Cream with Eric Clapton in 1968. The opening band was Spirit. Saw a number of other shows there, Led Zeppelin and all the other hoo-ha that was going through there. Spirit
0: and Led Zeppelin on On the the same, uh uh-oh.
1: No, not on the same bill. (laughs) Actually, Jethro Jethro Tull was the opening act for that one. Uh, Spirit was the opening act for Cream. But there was a a whole lot of shows like that um, until, though also kind of concurrent, up to that point, Orange County, as you know, was a pretty conservative place, but also had a strong libertarian streak Mm -hmm. where, you know, they thought, well, these kids, we don't understand what they're doing or this racket they're making, but they're just trying to make a buck and we understand that. Yeah. So they would just generally were kind of open to it when the whole hippie thing and the protests over Vietnam came along and the long hair and the drugs and all that sort of stuff, that attitude started to change and it became a lot more antagonistic. And um, it didn't help that some of the rock shows were pretty unruly. There was a band, Grand, Grand Funk Railroad, which was sort of a, a lunkhead rock band that did a show, I think it was in 69 or 70 at Anaheim Convention Center, where there was a minor riot with people that didn't have tickets trying to break into the show. And just a bad example of crowd control and cops were called in from all the neighboring cities and they were cracking heads and things and um, and due to that they banned rock shows there for three or four years and, and it didn't help that one of the city fathers like some guy in the city council swore he saw a couple fornicating on the lawn which in in decades of looking for that at rock shows that i've never seen happen
0: i <laughs> have never been so lucky to find that yeah. <laughs> well i think you know I, I i appreciate we're coming in the end of our time here and i i wish we had more i i and i'm gonna take the uh, i'm gonna ask you on air and put you on the spot that you'll come back and do this again because we barely scratched the surface and this and there's so much i want to talk about and um but thank you so much jim washburn for being with me um on vintage orange and uh next time we'll get back we'll talk about some of the other things that we're happening more in the 60s and it's hard to believe that there was even any of that type of uh Counter-culture happening in this very planned environment of the OC. A lot of people think that nothing exciting ever happens here.
1: And we haven't even gotten to the punk scene yet.
0: I know. So that's next time. We're saving yeah. it up. So we're going to tease that for the next visit when you're coming in. But thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate you being with us. And on KUCI 88.9 FM, this is Ellen Bell. Thank you for being with me. And to go out, I'm going to send you out again as I opened with a little bit of Dick Dale. The king of the surf guitar. <laughs>